0: Good morning. Good morning. It's an honor to be up here speaking to you. And as I prayed about this message, God was very clear to me about the topic of revival being what He wanted. And in some very specific ways, He kind of got a hold of my heart. And uh, even in preparing at one point, as I'm preparing, I'm driving somewhere to prepare, and the Lord, I sense just in this quiet, still voice in my heart, pull over. I'm like, pull over? I don't know, that can't be God. Uh, pull over. So I pull over, and God begins to give me particulars about the message. And so I grab, in my bag here, I grab my notepad, and I start writing some notes, and and I start driving again. And then I heard that same Saul still voice say, pull over. So this time I pulled over pretty quickly. I start writing some notes. And in my mind later as I'm driving, I was 10 minutes away from where I was going to sit and do some preparation. And I'm like, God, why is this, you know, why would you interrupt me rather than just going? And I felt like the Lord just quietly spoke to me and said, do you think revival comes in an easy way, in the way that you want it, in the way that you like it? I went, no, Lord. Nate, do I need to put this closer here? we good? Okay, let me see if I can adjust this closer because I'm hearing some feedback. Okay, anyway, but revival coming in a way, it is not always comfortable. It's not always the way that you want it when God shows up. And today, we're going to look at some historical revivals and talk a little bit about what revival is. What the Lord spoke to me about this message is that He wants to give us a taste of revival. And only He can do that. And since He's the only one who can do it, let's just take a moment and pray for that. Lord, only You can really give us a taste of revival. Would You open our hearts and our minds and our spirits to what Your Spirit would speak to us today? God, would you humble us and remove barriers which would stand in the way of what you want to do in this church, in this city, and to the ends of the earth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you do a Google search on revival, one of the most interesting things that came up was revival fried chicken. And I was really surprised. It's a a restaurant up in Minneapolis that has apparently some of the best fried chicken. The idea is it's reviving from the old southern way, and it's like a gourmet restaurant. And I was like, huh, I better tell Sarah Carlin about that. She runs up to Minneapolis every so often. Revival fried chicken. But what is that idea of revival? It's taking from what is old and bringing anew to revive. Vivir in Spanish is to live, so to revive from the Latin. A.W. Tozer defined revival like this. Revival is essentially a manifestation of God. It has the stamp of deity on which even the unregenerate and uninitiated are quick to recognize. Revival must of necessity make an impact on the community, and this is one means by which we distinguish it from the more usual operations of the Holy Spirit. Revival does call people to return to God and return to God in a way of what he says is normal. God's normal is different than what our society says is normal. It's different than often our opinions of what God's idea of normal is. And even it's different, of course, than our sin. Revival is a life of health and vigor. It's a place where the Lord, it's a place with the Lord, we're passionately wanting his will over ours, no matter what that looks like. The fruit of this is a contagious life where God responds in powerful ways even in many difficult situations. And he moves mountains for his people who are aligned with his heart. I want you to listen to Isaiah's cry for revival in his day. And then we will move forward with some scripture. Would you stand with me as we read some of God's word here? Isaiah 63, 18 through 64, 4 says this. For a little while, your people possessed your holy place, but now our enemies have trampled down your sanctuary. We are yours from of old, but you have not ruled over them, and they have not been called by your name. He's talking about the people. And here's where Isaiah cries out, Oh, that, the, that you would rend the heavens and come down, and the mountains would tremble before you, as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. Come down to make your name known to your enemies, and caused the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down, and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no eye has perceived, no eye has seen, or any, has seen any God beside you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. And then in Isaiah 6. So the first one is God's cry or Isaiah's cry, God, rend the heavens, come down. We need you to move in our life. We need you to move in our time. And then here is where Isaiah had an encounter with the Lord. This is just after King Uzziah died. He says, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two wings they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. At the sound of of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. And Isaiah replies, Woe to me, I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the tongs of the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. You may be seated. Isaiah not only had cried out for God, but he had a powerful encounter with the Lord. This was one where he said, I'm undone. Now, this is Isaiah the prophet. He's a contemporary, meaning he lived at the same time as King Hezekiah and some other kings. It was about 700 B.C. is the the era that this is. And Isaiah had an encounter with God that wrecked him. And the first thing in that encounter was this place where he realized, I'm a man of unclean lips. I am among a people that are unclean. See, when you get close to the Lord, you begin to see things you didn't see before. Some of the small things in life that before you just ignore, some of the small sins begin to bother you. Some of the things that you see in your own heart begin to wreck you because God convicts even of the small disobedience. I would say that the closer we get to God, the more we see the reality of our own condition and the more we recognize our need for Him. Does anyone resonate with that? Yeah, that's been my experience. I want to talk about three different revivals. First, we're going to very briefly talk about a revival in the Old Testament with King Hezekiah. Then we're going to talk about a revival which happened in a small town of Hanhut, Germany with Count Zinzendorf. And then we're going to talk about the Brownsville revival, which is within some of our lifetimes. King Hezekiah, here's the context. King Hezekiah became king after his father, King Ahaz. Ahaz, right? Not Ahab. Ahaz, that's right. King Ahaz. This is now the kings of Judah, not the kings of Israel. At this time, Israel had already been taken by the Assyrians. Most of Israel was gone. There was a remnant that was left of the ten and a half, that's the northern kingdom, the tribes. In the southern kingdom, there was still Judah and Benjamin, and they were still intact. But it was pretty intense. So Ahaz was losing battle after battle. That's Hezekiah's father. And Ahaz began to turn away from the Lord. As a matter of fact, it said that he had done more wickedness than all the kings of Judah before him and was like the kings of Israel. He set up these altars to other gods, and when the battles came and he was losing battles, he decided, well, I had better better sacrifice to these gods of these other lands that won the battles because that must be where it's at. So he closes the door to the temple, He decides that worshiping God is not worth it, and he sets up more altars and high places to other gods. When he dies, Hezekiah comes on the scene. Hezekiah is a king that God says he did right in the eyes of the Lord. This is in 2 Chronicles 29 through 32 is where Hezekiah is. says he did right in the eyes of the Lord according to his father David. Now, his father wasn't really David, was he? His father was Ahaz. But do you notice that there is a spiritual legacy that he's calling back and that the Bible calls back to? This is David. He talks about following in the ways of David. And maybe some of you don't have solid spiritual earthly fathers. Look to a spiritual father. Pick someone that walks before the Lord in a way that you honor. Grab onto them and pursue what they're pursuing in the Lord. You will find that there is a place of revival in your own heart by following those who have gone before you. It's very powerful. That's exactly what Hezekiah did. Here's what he did. In the first year of his reign, the first month, he opened the doors to the house of the Lord and repaired them. He gathered the Levites together then. He spoke to them and said, Look, guys, here's the reason why things are messed up. We turned away from the Lord. Our forefathers went away from God. This is a mess. But we're going to turn back to the Lord. Go to the temple my father closed. Clean it out. Repair the doors. We're going to open house, and we're going to begin worshiping God again. And this was so imminent on his heart that by day 16 of his reign, they had begun temple worship again. And eight of those days was the purification of the temple. So the first eight days, the Levites got everything out of the temple that was a disgrace to the Lord, and then they began worshiping on day 16. And things began to go better for them. All of Israel came out for this celebration. There was joy and rejoicing. And the, the worship began. Just a few months later, Passover time came. And during Passover, or before Passover, King Hezekiah invited Israel to come. Now, you might say, well, yeah, that's all, of course he would. No, no, no. Israel and Judah were against each other. The northern tribe and the southern tribe often were in battles with, sometimes they, they united together, sometimes they were in an animosity. And here it is, Israel, that had been judged by the Lord, the Assyrians have taken them over. There's only a remnant. So he sends people saying, come. His message is this, come back to the Lord. Return to the God of your forefathers that it may go well with you. Return, come worship with us as he commanded that we'd worship and celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. It says in the scripture that some mocked, but some came. And when they came, they celebrated the normal seven days of Passover with great joy. And then the people there said, come on. Let's celebrate another seven days. And so the king and some of the princes gave all the food and said, let's do another seven-day celebration. Let's really party with the Lord. Now, it wasn't just a party, and here's how we find out. This small verse in, First Chron- in Second Chronicles 31, chapter 1, it says, Second Chronicles ver- 31, verse 1, it says this. Those who came from Israel, when they left after the 14 days, went throughout Judah and throughout their own lands, tearing down the altars that were to other gods, tearing down the Asherah poles. All the uh, the idolatry, the worship of idolatry, the people from Israel, not those of Judah, from Israel went and tore them down and destroyed them so they could worship God, the Lord, Jehovah. That's a move of God. That may sound small, but that's a move of God. It's turning away from idols, destroying the things of the past, that I have worshipped and have come between me and God and then turning back to God and worshipping. A little bit later, the Assyrian king, Sennacherib, comes to attack. Here's Hezekiah. He's in his walled city of Jerusalem. There were at least 185,000 soldiers. And the king of Assyria says this, What God has stood before us? What God has been able to defeat us? And it's true. Assyria had been marching through land after land after land, assimilating, taking over, and conquering with almost no resistance. They were a very well-trained army. He said, your God's not going to save you. No God could save you from us. Well, I think that was a challenge for the Lord. I really do. So Hezekiah goes away and prays, and Isaiah comes to him and says, the Lord has spoken that he's going to save you from the Assyrians. Now, when you see a land, so give you an idea, 185,000 soldiers, that's almost the population of Madison. Take all the population of Madison, put them in one place, surround a small place, maybe like, I don't know, this church and a few other places on the block, and see if you're going to have confidence that you're actually going to win. Hezekiah was scared. I don't blame him. I would be scared too. But what he does is he prays the Lord. The Lord says, I'm going to take care of this. (laughs) He said, by tomorrow, you're going to see. And what happens? That night, an an angel, one angel of the Lord comes, and he slays 185,000 of of the Assyrian soldiers. And Sennacherib gets up the next day and goes, oh, let's go back to Nineveh. Let's go regroup and figure out what's going on. That was it. They never attacked Judah, again, in Hezekiah's lifetime. And this was a powerful place of God. Hezekiah found the salvation of the Lord. But it's because they had turned back to the Lord. With his father, they got conquered continuously. With Hezekiah, God was moving. And he was moving in power. It says at the end that Hezekiah had immense riches and honor at the end of his life. God prospered them amazingly. And I want to say, this is not a prosperity gospel, but I think that some of what happens when we follow the Lord is God does right things by us. And oftentimes, when we come into these problems and challenges, it's not that our life is without problems. It's that when we come into them, God moves in ways that are beyond what we thought or we could have imagined. And he rescues us from situations over and over and over. This is the power of turning back to God. Just a few weeks ago, I was on a family trip, which I'm really grateful for. My mom invited our whole family to go to Paris. And we had a week in Paris that was just wonderful and uh, just a great time. I tagged on to that a little bit of time in Germany where I had lived before, and I went back to this little town. I shouldn't say I went back. I'd never been there. But when I went back to Germany, I went to this little town called Hanhut, which is a town in the eastern part of Germany very near Poland, And I went there because of history, because I wanted to see this place where Count Zinzendorf had been. Has anyone, who's heard of Count Zinzendorf, anybody? Some people here have heard of Count Zinzendorf. Count Zinzendorf actually, in his humility, led a revival. And I want to tell you a little bit about that. Count Zinzendorf was a political figure. He's a leader in the area that he has. A count, I guess, has certain land and all that. He was always a Christian growing up, always a man of prayer, it says, if you look at the journals. This is now the 1700s that we're talking about. And in 1724, he had returned from education at a pious uh, denomination, a a university called Halle, and he became a lawyer, and he was working in in a place about, by car today, it's about an hour and 15-minute drive called Dresden. Back then, it was probably a day's run. Especially in the Autobahns in Germany right now, you can get everywhere fast. It's amazing. Unlimited speed is wonderful, I gotta say. So, Count Zinzendorf is approached by a guy named Christian David, who comes from Moravia. This is the Moravian church, and they are people who have gone away from traditional religion and felt a call from God to worship God a little bit differently than the local church. And uh, they were being persecuted, and this was, they were persecuted for about three centuries, actually. It was in the 1400s when this began. And This guy, David, found Count Zinzendorf and said, can we move to your land? We're being persecuted. It was just a few families, and he said, okay. And what happened is that the word got out that if you were persecuted as a Christian, you could come and live where Count Zinzendorf is. So by the end, a couple hundred people had moved to this land. David himself went, it says in in the journals, no less than 10 times back to grab people from Moravia and say, hey, we got a better place where you're not persecuted. Well, there were many denominations which were there, even in those days. There was Baptist, there was uh, the Moravian Church, there were just a whole variety. There was the Catholics, Lutherans, and there began to be infighting. And the infighting got so strong that Count Zindendorf, who had the land, the, uh, some people, some leaders who had come called him the beast, and called this from, from Revelations, called him the beast, and the pastor of the church that he was going to, he called the false prophet. So this was getting a little bit out of hand. All they heard was animosity. And so Count Zinzendorf went door to door to ask people, would you come back to the Lord? Would you return to the ways? Can we simply focus on what we agree upon in the Lord? And that was kind of working, but there was still some animosity. So being the lawyer he was, on May 12th, 1727, he draws all the people together and says, we're going to sign a pact together. I want everyone to sign. You're on my land. You're here by my grace. We're going to commit to not arguing and not infighting on theology. We're going to commit to agreeing upon the things which are central to our faith. And so they all commit to this. And the history records this as the golden years. They talked about it as one of the most peaceful, joyful summers that had happened in this little place called Hernhut. During this time of unity they began to pray together not apart and God began to move. It says that they had this experience I believe it was April 13th after a couple all night prayer meetings they have this experience with the Holy Spirit that they could only describe as the second Pentecost. They were not expecting it some of their denominational views wouldn't even say that this would happen today. And yet the Holy Spirit moved on them in such a way that they were rocked to the core and they began to return to God in powerful ways, more than just in a place of peace. A few days later, 24 men and 24 women agreed that they would start praying around the clock in shifts. And they called it the hourly watch. This hourly watch continued from generation to generation. It actually went on 100 years more people joined. But there was 100 years of nonstop prayer. And that was very, very powerful. I think I have some pictures here of Hanhut. This is Hanhut. It's just a little map. It's a small little town in Germany. Let's go to the next slide. This is the place that they have landmarked as the beginning of the prayer movement. Next slide. And there it is. It says on the 12th of May... 1724, this is where they made this agreement in Herrenhut, and this is where they began praying together. Next. That is a bust, I guess, is that what it's called? I don't know. Sculpture of Count Zinzendorf and who he is. I'll just give you a little context. So they began to pray, and the first five years of prayer was just laboring. It wasn't really anything super exciting. Not a whole lot was happening. But after five years, one of the guys had a dream. In Indian's dream, there were slaves from the West Indies that were crying out for salvation in his dream. And he and one other man went to figure out, can we get to the West Indies, which is the Caribbean, by the way. So the Caribbean. And they were ready to sell themselves as slaves just so they could bring the gospel. That's a level of commitment that we don't see very often. They didn't end up having to sell themselves into slavery. The law is that they did. They didn't end up having to do that. But what they did is they were able to get to the island. They had to go through a whole bunch of hoops to get on a ship to even go over to the Caribbean. And when they did, they established a work of the Lord, and there were many, many people converted. And they say that when the ship was sailing away, their intent was never to return. And here's what the cry was. It was that the lamb would receive the reward of his suffering. That was their heart. And five years of continuous prayer will change your heart. But the prayer went on, and the movement went on. A hundred missionaries came to the Lord in the first 25 years. And this pushed a man named William Carey, who was in the Baptist movement, who said, he got his leadership team together and said, this is unbelievable. The Moravians are doing what we should be doing. We should also follow their lead and send out missionaries. And so in this little town of 300, with Count Zinzendorf, in this prayer movement, missionaries began to go out, and it stirred other denominations also to begin to do missions. And that is the beginning of the evangelical modern missions. This was all in in this little town of Herrenhut with Count Zinzendorf and the people the Moravians. Charles Wesley came across the Moravians. And Charles Wesley was going over. It's kind of a funny story. He's on a ship going over to be a missionary. And he recognizes that these Moravians are really kind, and great people. And he's like, what's, what's going on? And then the ship goes through a storm, and these waves begin to hit over the bow, and one of them cracks the sail, and people are scared, they're screaming, and yet this small group of Moravians is just there worshiping God. They're just there quietly praying and worshiping, even as some of the, the decks are getting flooded. And Wesley goes to them after the storm, and he goes to the man, weren't you scared? And he said, no, by God's grace. And Wesley answered surely, the women and children were. And the Moravian leader answered, our women and children were not scared. We're not afraid to die. And this perplexed Wesley. This in his heart stirred things and he's like, "What is going on?" It was so intense. He couldn't get It says in his journals he could not push it away. So he goes And he finds a bishop, a Moravian bishop in the U.S., and talks to this guy. And the guy said, Do you believe in salvation that the blood of Christ saves? He says, Yes. He said, Do you believe it for you? And Wesley said, Well, I think so. And he said, Do you have an assurance of salvation? And Wesley honestly said, I don't know if I do. Wesley, several months later, returned back to Europe and on the ship, he writes that that was the place where he realized and got assurance of salvation and he became like the Moravians. He went and visited the Moravians along with George Whitfield, and they said, this place was amazing. They're like, this is like heaven on earth. We want to stay, but God has called us to another vineyard to work in. They encountered the Lord in a powerful way. And it changed Wesley, and it changed his message. And it wasn't long after that that Wesley and Whitfield led a revival in England. This is contagious. The move of God is contagious. To sum up about Herrnhut, in the 100 years, this is about five generations that were praying and praying and praying, this town of 300 both attracted people and sent over 1,100 missionaries around the world. This revival truly impacted the world. Now, not everything in, in revival is exciting. A hundred years of prayer. Can you imagine being sent as a missionary, knowing people are praying for you 24 hours a day, seven days a week? Boy, that's a confidence that I'd like to be sent in. Let me show you a few modern-day pictures of Hirnhut. So this is the church that was formed where they had the prayer meeting. This is right behind that wall in that picture. Next. This is from a little tower. I took a picture. That's the church and the town. And something that is interesting, it's in a very beautiful area. I don't know how to describe this other than to say there was a lightness in Hanhut. There was, it just felt airy and open. And it felt, the green grass seemed to be a little greener, the sky seemed to be a little bluer. And it just seemed that God's life was there in a way that had permeated that space. And this was just my experience, and I was like, "Huh, eh, you know, maybe that's just me." So I asked. I stayed with with uh, youth with a mission, and I asked them, and they said that's a common experience when people first come to Hanhoot, to realize that there's something very different about this town, and that there is a peace and a joy and a rest in this place. There's a little more of the of the countryside, next. I was kind of touched. It's just a car. And you can see there's a little sticker on it. The next slide shows a a blow-up of that. This is still their motto. Let our lamb, our lamb is conquered, let us follow him. This is the Moravians, and this is their, their cry. He's worthy of it. They see the king of their church and the head of their church as being the lamb, which is Christ, who was slain. Next. This was a place called Jesus' house, which is Jesus' house, where they have begun to do regular prayer meetings again. Three times a day, prayer and worship of the Lord. Let's go to the next slide. This is now at YWAM, uh, where there was we were having a party. It was great. And uh, playing some silly games. The next slide. And this is where the losers of the games, I didn't know this, got pies in the face, so I was one of them, with one of the winners who smiled and shook my hand. So there we are. Anyway, a great time in Hanhoot. It was a powerful place. I expected God was going to move in this incredible way in my heart, coming to this place. What I found instead was peace, joy, and rest in the Lord and a desire to follow him more closely. That was the impact that Hoot had on me. I want to switch to the third revival. I want to talk about Brownsville. Brownsville Assemblies of God is in Pensacola, Florida. And on Father's Day, 1995, they began to have a move of God when they had an evangelist come. This evangelist, Steve Hill, had been to Trinity Brompton in England, an Anglican church which was going through a revival. Steve Hill had been in some revivals down in, um, in Argentina with Carlos Anacondia. Some of you might know that name if I'm saying it right. And, uh, but he never felt and experienced manifestations of God. He'd pray for people, people would fall over, all sorts of stuff. He goes to Trinity Brompton, this Anglican church, and it's known, by the way, it's best known. You know the alpha course we do for new believers or people who want to know about their faith? That came out of Trinity Brompton in England. That's where we get that. A guy named Nicky Gumbel and Sandy Miller. So Steve Hill hears about this. He goes over, he gets prayed for. He has never been what some Pentecostals call slain in the spirit, right? The power of God overcomes you and you fall down. He had never had that experience. As a matter of fact, he was kind of one of the guys who go, Nothing's going to shove me down. I'm, I'm a tough guy. And he goes, wham, he's down. He's out for six hours in the spirit. God begins to do things in his heart. He comes back the next day So pray for me again. I don't know what that was, but pray for me again. Pray for me again. And he is transformed by the power of God in his own story. He comes home, he tells his wife over the phone first, yeah, yeah, all this great stuff happened. And when I get home, I want to pray for you. She's like, yeah, okay, Steve, you know, whatever. You know, his wife knew him pretty well and knew that this was probably just something he was excited about. And so in his own words, and his wife was there when he was telling this testimony, he starts laying hands on her. He doesn't even touch her. And she goes falling back and screams, the power of God! And she was impacted by the power of God. What is that? I don't know other than the power of God. Why God has, why that manifestation, why these things happen, I don't know. I don't know, but some of them are humbling. Some of them change our perspective in how God works with us. So I, had, I didn't know anything about this revival. It begins on Father's Day 1995. I'd never heard of it. I had actually really given my heart to the Lord in a, as a committed Christian and said, Lord, I want to serve you with all costs, as best I know how, in 1996. So this revival had started before then. And shortly after I'd really made this commitment in my heart, I became a leader of the youth group with four other people. And this was in a church in Germany. It was a missions church. It was a really amazing place to be and to grow. Pastor Ken and Peggy Craig had been missionaries uh, or um, pastors for over, at that point, over 35 years. They were in their 50s. They went to the mission field when they were 18 and 19. And I was just awed by them. And they had such wisdom in the Lord. And I learned a lot from them. And so he, after about two months after I really gave my heart to the Lord, he gathers this group and says, hey, I want you guys to start a youth group. We don't have a youth group and we really need to reach our youth. So I was like, all right, I'm in. And there were four other people who were in. One of the people was this soldier in the military named Daniel. And much of our church was military. And Daniel had been a Satanist five years before. Daniel had come into an encounter first with Satan and then with God. His encounter with Satan was he was worshiping Satan. He was part of the Satanic church. He thought that was great. He loved the power as he would talk about it. The power and the rush he'd get, and the things he could do to people. And he was in his room one night, and in his own words, he said, Satan appeared to me, he said, and it was so dark and so heavy and so nasty, it scared, he said, it scared the snot out of him. He said, it actually scared him from following Satan, because Satan wanted to make a pact with him at that point, a lifelong pact. And he got scared, he said no. And then he goes, a couple days later, he goes and climbs a mountain, gets to the top of this mountain. And he's like, God, if you're real, come show yourself. Come on, God, you show, you prove yourself to me. Nothing. God, if you're real, move this big stone over there. Nothing. And he begins challenging God, if you're real, if you're real, if you're real, and nothing happens, And then he says this. God, if you're real, I need you. I don't want to serve Satan. He scares me, and I don't want to be in his grips anymore. Would you change my life? And that was a place where Daniel gets saved. And Daniel begins fellowshipping in a Christian church, starts getting discipled. And now here he is, fast forward five years, a soldier in Germany. I think he was about 24 years old. And that's where where I was, I think, at that point, or 25 And we're brothers in the Lord, and and (laughs) this is where when I first kind of got committed to Christ, I didn't know what to do with myself on a Friday or Saturday night. And I went to Daniel, I was just used to going in pubs and hanging out and partying, and that was just fun. And I said, Daniel, what do Christians do on a Friday or Saturday night? He goes, I don't know. Well, it was a Friday night when we were together. He said, Oh, I guess we hang out together and do stuff. Like, yeah, that's cool. Maybe someone should write a book on 100 things for new Christians to do <laughs> on Fridays and Saturday nights when they're saved because that's what I thought. I just thought that would be smart. So anyway, we're palling around, but I noticed something about Daniel. Daniel would have these ups and downs, major swings. He's for God. He's passionate about God. And then he goes away for a couple of weeks and goes dark. And these cycles were happening over and over. And in one of these dark cycles, he goes on leave back to the U.S. And... We don't see him really from the two weeks that he was kind of dark and then he goes for 30 days' leave as the military gives him. And the first I hear from him is a phone call. Chris, I got to speak to the youth today. He was flying back an overnight flight from Thursday night to Friday morning. At this point, I was the leader of the youth group. There were three leaders. Two had gone back to their country. And um, I said, Daniel, I don't think that's really smart. Dude, you'll be like 40 hours no sleep, and you want to talk to the youth? He's like, I got to speak to the youth tonight. I said, okay. He comes, there's a 7 o'clock meeting that we have with the youth, and it was 12 to 17-year-olds. You know, we'd usually play games and do some goofy stuff and then speak. Well, he wanted the whole time. It's like, okay, it's your night. It's your night. He began talking about God, and he begins saying to them, you've got to get serious with God. God is really real. I encountered God in the U.S. You've got to get your heart right with God. Sin isn't worth it. It's a mess. And he starts talking like this. I was riveted. But after about 30 minutes, I look around. You know the 12 and 13-year-olds that couldn't sit still for five minutes? They were riveted. They were drawn to Daniel and what he was saying. And it wasn't just what he was saying. There was something in his heart there was something going on inside of him that had changed, and it was dramatic. And there was something that made it seem like this wasn't one of these swings. This wasn't just him getting passionate again for God. And so I asked him after, I said, Daniel, what was going on? What happened? He said, well, I went to this place called Brownsville. I said, Brownsville, what's that? He said, it's a church in Pensacola, Florida. He said, we waited in line to get into church. I said, What? Who waits? What do you mean wait in line to get into church? You know, I've never waited in line to get into a church. And sometimes I just come late to church. There's always seats, right? <clears throat> but they waited in line for hours to get into this church service. And I said, why would you wait in line? He said, Chris, I don't know how to tell you this, but there was a tangible presence of God that is undeniable. And I said, I want to hear more. He said, here, here's a cassette tape. Go listen to this. Tell me what you think of it. So I'm driving away from youth group. I put this cassette tape in the car. And it's this Evangelist Steve Hill preaching a message. The message is called Hungry for God. And after about 10 minutes into the message, I am so convicted, I'm weeping. And I pull over on the side of the road and begin to say, "God, forgive me." I'm convicted of sin. And I'm convicted of things in my life that I had called kind of okay and was overlooking. And God began to challenge me in those areas. And he was challenging me to real obedience. And I began to repent. And finally, I dry up. I get back on the road. Man, I wasn't on the road another 10 minutes. I'm stopping alongside again because I am I can't see to drive. It's so powerful. And this is just some cassette tape of some guy preaching. The Spirit of God was moving. And it was moving in my heart in a way that was indescribable, amazingly loving, and yet amazingly convicting. I think it was three times more that I had to stop that tape because it took me a couple days, actually, to finish it because at a certain point, you're just wrecked. <laughs> like, I can't hear any more of this. I can't. I, I, God, what do, what do I do with myself? So because of that and because I watched Daniel and Daniel consistently was running after God, there was no more ups and downs. It was amazing. I said, I need to go check this out myself. So in March of 1998, I grab a buddy and I say, you want to go? He's like, yeah, I want to go. So we, we purchased flights to Pensacola, Florida from, from Frankfurt, Germany. And we go. Our Tuesday, they, their, their structure was this. Tuesday is prayer meeting. Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, revival meetings. Sunday morning and afternoon, church. And then they take Mondays off. Then Tuesday's prayer meeting. Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday, revival and church and then Monday off so it's a pretty intense cycle they would open the church at 7pm the the service started at 7pm I guess they'd open it probably at quarter to 7 but people would wait in lines before that so we go to Tuesday night prayer powerful time it lasts about two hours Um, and I'm just like wow this is the church huh it was a big church seated about 3,500 people and I was like wow this is big and there were probably three or four hundred people at the prayer meeting it was really cool no lines for that funny huh We don't have lines for prayer meetings, but we have lines for for God moving. I'd encourage you, the prayer meeting is where it's at. By the way, Tuesday night prayer, right down here. Right down here. Come on out. So Wednesday we arrive at 8.30 a.m. for a 7 p.m. meeting. I thought, we'll be first in line. No. There are about 100 people already waiting at 8.30 in the morning for a 7 p.m. service. Daniel had told me about this, but I couldn't believe it. I was like, this is people waiting for church? So I start asking them. Like, why are, why are you waiting? You're like, because the presence of God is here. It's worth the wait. People were coming on their spring breaks, youth groups were coming. The line was over 1,000 people long, easy before we got in. And we're sitting there in the sun, and everyone was really gracious. We could go out of line, get some food, and come back, and everyone was holding each other's places. It was generally Christian charity until the doors opened then everyone ran for their seats and Christian Charity was, get out of here, it's my seat. <laughs> no, it wasn't quite that bad, but it was, it was. It was a run. It was a run to get seats. It was crazy. This was my first time worshiping with over 3,000 people. I'm like, wow, this is amazing. And I could sense something. I could sense what I thought was a presence of God, but I didn't know if it was just that or worshiping with 3,000 people because that was kind of heaven on earth in a way I hadn't experienced. And also with this worship leader that I heard on a couple tapes, Lyndall Cooley, great worship leader, and just enjoying the time. Steve Hill then preaches a message, and it convicted me. And then he does an altar call. And what I can say is, during this message, I experienced something like what Isaiah talked about, where there's a nearness of God, and all I could see in myself was my sin. And I didn't want it in the way of me and God. There was such a holiness. There was such a powerful presence of God that I want anything out of the way of relationship between me and God. And Steve Hill in his altar calls. He says, come run to the altar. Run to the altar. I'll tell you, I wanted to run. It was that, it was that urgent in my heart to deal with God and to get sin out. And there was a guy walking in front of me like this, and I almost was tripping his shoes because I wanted to run. I needed to get there. And there was an urgency of confessing my sin and being free of that, that smut, that, that dirt in my soul. The amazing thing is that it's been there, it had been there all along. But I was at a place where the encounter with God, I think of it like a glass, a window. You know, at night when you look at a window, it doesn't look dirty you look out, it seems fine. But when the daylight and the sunlight comes, you see every imperfection and every piece and every bit of dirt. And it was like that. It's like I was seeing some of the dirt in my own soul. And I'll tell you the smallest little things I didn't want to have between me and God. And it was an intense place with the Lord. And I repented. They prayed for me. I began to shake. I hadn't known what shaking. I mean, it's kind of weird, right? Why shake? I don't know except it's recorded in Scripture several times where people shook before the Lord. It seems to be something that is a common experience. We went back on Friday, and we went back actually on Thursday and on Friday. On Friday was the baptismal services, and the baptismal services were the best service. It was like this. They had a baptismal back there, and they put a microphone, and they almost didn't need anyone to preach because these were testimonies of people getting saved. They limited it to 25 people a week because the, otherwise the service would go on all night long. And the first 25 people that got saved that week were given the baptism, or those who wanted to be baptized. And there was always more than 25 that wanted to be baptized each week. It was a powerful move of God. I want to give you a little bit of a taste of Brownsville. That there's actually videos on. And I want us to watch just a two or three minute video here, which was made from the 20th anniversary of Brownsville. So this is, it started in 1995, so it's about 23 years ago. It went till just about the year 2000. And so here's a snapshot of what was going on there. When people get close to God, the conviction of God that comes is powerful. And it's beautiful. It's hard because you have to actually admit that you screwed up, that you're a mess, that you've lost it. You hear from the baptisms? Man, those, those are pre- that guy's preaching at the end. Roll away the, roll away the stone because you stink. We all need to look in the mirror with God and not judged by the world around us, not judged by what what our culture says, not judged by some encouraging words, oh, it's okay, everybody sins, everybody messes up. Well, that's true. That's not God's heart for people. It never has been. His heart has always been a pureness. His heart has always been not to stay in sin, but to walk away from sin, to get out of sin, to walk away from the things that wreck you, Sin is like putting orange juice in your gas tank. It just doesn't work. The engineer who designed the car knows that it runs on gas. And God who designed us know what we run on best. It's truth, and it's honesty, it's integrity, it's purity, it's life. And that is where we get life abundantly. It's not in our mess that we continue to justify. I'm pleading with you today. If there are things you're justifying in the Lord, go face to face with him. Let him confront you. He's seen it all along. He has loved you in the midst of it. It doesn't change one iota, his love for you. It doesn't change anything about who you are in him. It just brings the freedom to draw closer. And it gives him the freedom to do things in your life that he's been wanting to do since he created you, that he cannot because it's unwise for God in our messes to give us more, just like it's unwise for a drunk 16-year-old to give him the keys to the car. God knows what we're like, and he protects us from ourselves and from others. He's a great God, but he wants wants the freedom in our own hearts that we can come close to him. Let me tell you a little bit about the impact of my trip to Brownsville that you got a little bit of a taste of. And by the way, go on the internet Google Brownsville Revival. You'll get all sorts of stuff. Watch some of the baptismal services. They have hour-long, there's probably 20 of them out there, 20 hours worth of baptisms. And they're just as powerful as what you're seeing here. During my time at Brownsville, I sensed the Lord speak to me to focus on the youth and not on other ministries at the church. We're in a smaller church of about 80 people, so there was a lot I could be involved in. And so I called my pastor from a payphone there and said, hey, this is pre-international cell phone stuff. And I said, this is what I'm sensing from God. And he said, great, go for it. And the Lord just spoke to me. He said, you just be the man of God I've called you to be. You walk in a purity of heart. Forget all the programming. Forget all the games. All the things that you've been doing in the youth group, I'm doing something different. And I said, okay, Lord. And I came back and I spoke to people about what was going on there. And and I had found out that there was going to be a youth retreat in Germany where the Brownsville youth were coming over. To minister and I thought this is great so I called up the guy who's in charge of it in Germany and he said there's no space we've been sold out for months I mean there's just there's no space and I'm just praying and I feel like we're supposed to go I have parents who have said we're interested in our kids going if you can figure it out and like in the third conversation I have with this guy just a really neat godly man who's running this camp he said wait these are American youth I said yeah it's a military base where this church is and and so they're all pretty they're all Americans except one or two Oh, well, we have your internationals then. We have room for internationals. We have special housing for you. This is great. Yeah, 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 come. And suddenly the store opened wide that I thought wasn't going to open. And so we sign up the youth. We go, you know, the locals had to camp out. We had beds. It was really nice. It was really nice. We go, but God gave the youth time with, our youth time with Brownsville youth. And I will tell you, revival's contagious. Our youth, We went up, and everyone's arguing about what music, and I want to play my music, and I want to play my music. It was a six-hour drive, which is a long drive when people are arguing about music. Hats off to Derek and Joe, you know. God bless you. (laughs) On the way back, the youth were so impacted there that on the way back, all they wanted to do was worship God and give their testimonies and what God had done. We spent six hours in a van. There were two vans. Both vans ended up doing the same thing. Six hours of the youth talking about their experience with God, how God encountered them, and then every so often pausing and saying, can we just put on some worship music? We just want to worship God. Can we worship God? I'm like, yeah, let's do it. Come on. That was our time. We get back, and uh, we had a week before we had our next church service. We got back on a Sunday night, and on Tuesday, I think it was, I get this call from a parent who said this, what did you do to my kids? And I was like, what? I, was, I didn't know. Did someone get hurt? I, you know, something I was unaware of. I had no idea. I'm like, uh, why? What happened? My daughters are tearing down their boy band posters, they're scratching the CDs of the secular music they were listening to. They just want to worship God, they want to pray. They're talking about things of God. What did you do? And I said, I didn't do anything. I took them to a place where God was moving, where they encountered God, and they were transformed. You know, you don't know in youth if they actually are having an experience that's just a hype and a moment, or if this is transformational. This was transformational. Three of the youth who had different plans decided to go to school for ministry after that. Their hearts were for the Lord, and this was happening over and over and over in the youth. The youth began to pray and have prayer meetings, because they, they wanted our church to experience God like they had experienced. We got together. The, the pastor let us have a Sunday. They got together on a Saturday. The, the, the youth wanted to pray. We got together. They prayed for three hours straight, saying, God, would you move on our congregation? God, would you impact our parents and the families there like you impacted us? God, we desperately need you. We can't just play church anymore. We can't just go on day by day by day. And God answered us. When we had this service, it was their testimonies. And God began to move. Shortly after, like the second person starts giving a testimony, one of the adults comes up and just comes to the front and lays down and weeps, weeps before God. And other people were following suit. It was like we probably had 10 people in a church of maybe 80 that had been moved by God so much by what had happened in the youth that they themselves were repenting. And that's contagious. Revival is contagious. Revival is interesting because it happens in an individual heart, but then it also happens more globally. When God moves in our heart and in our lives and we get a hold of who he truly is more and more and more, we don't look like the world. We actually look different, and there's something maybe weird about us, but contagious. There's something that maybe people like that is a peculiar person, and the scripture <laughs> describes us right. If you look at First Peter; it says we're a peculiar people. I think that's God's intent—not to be weird for weirdness' sake—but we're peculiar because when you follow the ways of God, it's countercultural. It doesn't fit in with the streams that we have. During this time, we began having meetings. Uh, one, of the, one of the parents, the, the youth's parents, loved to have singles over, and there was a group of us that were single, and, and we just hang out, a lot of us, 20-somethings. And I told them about Brownsville, and they wanted to see a videotape. So we agreed that at 9 a.m. that next morning, we're going to watch this videotape. So we watch this videotape, and the worship is powerful, the message is powerful. And when it was done, people were like, whoa, this is really powerful. I'm like, I told you, this is really powerful. And you could just sense the spirit of God moving through a videotape. That was out of my, you know, I didn't think, why would God move through a cassette tape or videotape? I don't know, but he does. And it was powerful. And we began having these weekly meetings. I had brought back like 20 videotapes. You know, I was like completely wanted to see more of what I had experienced. And so it became every Sunday at 9 a.m. we'd meet. Now, our church was in the afternoon at 4 p.m. So we would meet at 9 a.m. We'd watch these videos. And after we watched these videos, we began to pray for one another. People were healed. We had a guy who came who was having demonic oppression, and he began to manifest demons, and those were cast out, and he walked in new freedom. It was just, this was happening, and other people from our church said, can we come, can we come? We started getting this crowd on Sunday mornings. We actually had to set an alarm clock for 2.30 p.m. So that way we would stop after five and a half hours. We would get some food and get off to church. It was about a 45-minute drive to church. And that was our Sundays. All the things that were important to us that we thought were so important in the world got set aside because there was something much greater that we were pursuing, and that was the Lord and his nearness. It was a very powerful time. What's common in these revivals? First, people turned back to God's ways, forsaking sin and wickedness. People's perspective changed, and a desire to follow God's ways became the center. And the things that they had put before God, I'm going to call them idols for now, things which became more important than God became less important. Their ways became contagious in all three of these revivals to those who came in contact with them. And God blessed their return to him and moved in their lives and the life of the local community and beyond in each of these three revivals. So what should we do? How do we respond? First Chronicles 7.14 says this. Sorry, Second Chronicles 7.14 says this. If my people who are called by my name, that's all of us, will first humble themselves... Folks, we're not going to have a revival or a move of God if we're proud. It just doesn't work. It says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is a place of saying, God, I want you. You are worth it, no matter what the cost, no matter what it looks like. I want you more than I want my ways, more than I even want my idea of who you are. You may be surprised by who God is that you didn't think he was. To humble ourselves, to pray. Prayer is a key to revival. Prayer, God answers prayer. I don't know of God moving outside of prayer. And God does powerful things when we pray. It's why Tuesday night prayer meeting, Tom always says this, and I agree, it's the most important meeting at this church each week. It's Tuesday nights downstairs, not here. Because it's the fuel by which all of this happens. And it's the fuel by which God moves. We humble ourselves and pray. Then we seek his face. We go after who he is We go after him for who he is, and we turn from our wicked ways. Yes, the wickedness that's in all of us, we turn from. We say, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to turn from that temptation and go the other way, and I'm going to begin a life that will honor God, or I'm going to change in that way. It says when we do this then, the Lord will hear from heaven. The Lord will forgive our sin, and the Lord will heal our land. Folks, we have a divided place. We have a divided country that's politically divided, that's angry, that spins lies about each other. There is so much garbage. I can't watch regular news anymore. It's it's so much worse. It's worse than a tabloid. It's worse than the... I remember when I was growing up, there was the inquirer. Inquiring minds want to know, right? I think it's worse than the inquirer now. I think it's that bad. It's not even based on fact. It's like... Some rumor that they want to develop as if it's true, and I'm just I'm sick of it. I can't watch it. When I was in Hanhu, here's what the Lord spoke to me at a time of intercession. He said two things. One is that very powerfully he reminded me this is the dispensation of grace. And that's a fancy way of saying this. When God sent his son Jesus to die for us, it opened up a door where we do not have to do temple sacrifice. You know, when in the Old Testament when they had to sacrifice a goat, that cost them something. That's part of their livelihood. When they had to bring a heifer, that's a cow. I don't see too many farmers giving up a couple of heifers each year just for sacrifice for God. That is there was real cost to that. God sent his son Jesus for that sacrifice, that ultimate sacrifice that we now by grace receive him. It's a free gift. That is the dispensation of grace. We are in that season. Until he comes again, we're in that season. But I think we sometimes take it so casually. Oh, God's gracious. Oh, he'll forgive my sin. I can just, I can mess around and I'll get to God later. That's taking Christ's crucifixion and what he did on the cross. That is taking it in vain. That's making empty what God did for us. It's so easy to do, and I'm guilty of that. But I want to urge you as I urge myself, let's not do that, folks. Let's not do that. Walking with him is worth it. Here's the second thing God shared with me in Hanhut. He said, I'm shaking the foundations of the world. I'm shaking them up so that way anything that is not built on me will fall and crumble. And people will be able to see me and cling to me rather than man's foundations. And I believe that we're seeing that, and we're going to see more of that. We're going to see more of the foundations being shaken And we're going to see more turmoil in this world, I believe, so God can have his bride. And so that way people will turn back to him. So let me do this. I'm going to close with a couple altar calls. The first one is this Would you stand with me? The first altar call is this. You started well in your walk with the Lord, you were doing great, and then some things came back in. And then sin crept in. And and this could have been 20 years ago, this could have been 30 years ago. And you begin to get tolerant of the things that God says are not okay. And you begin to let those come into your heart. This is the time of repentance, this is the day of salvation. If you sense the conviction of the Lord and want to turn away and walk in what is right and true, I'll tell you, you need his help. But he's calling you today. He's calling you today. If that is the conviction in your heart or if you've never known the Lord before and want to receive him, you can simply invite him in. You simply say, God, I'm a sinner. I can't save myself you went to the cross to sacrifice, even if it had been just me, just me, you would have died on the cross. God, would you change my heart? Would you free me of my sin? And if you're here, and you've walked away from the Lord, or if you've just let things creep in, there's freedom today. I want to encourage you to repent of that. Repenting is this. Repenting is this is what I'm doing, and I'm walking in sin, and It's really turning the other way and saying, I am not going to continue in that. It is asking forgiveness and confessing, yes. But it's also purposing in your heart to not stay in the same behavior, but to change your ways. God is available for forgiveness. In 1 John 1, 9, it says, if my, I'm quoting the wrong scripture. In 1 John 1, 9, It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Folks, he will purify you today. He will remove that stain which you cannot remove yourself. And he's crying out, he's calling out, will you come? Will you simply come? Will you simply Turn away from that garbage, that stuff that's in your life, whether it's pornography, whether it's lying, whether it's gossip, whether it's deceit, whether it's the pressure of telling little white lies, whatever those things are. God is saying, will you forsake that, that you can gain me? One of the psalmists said this, would I gain the whole world and lose my soul? All these things are not worth it. It's not worth the trade. Jesus will take all those things that he suffered and died for and he will give you freedom from them. Listen, you still got to walk it out. He forgives you. You have to choose repentance. He will give you the strength to walk differently. He will give you the ability to leave the old ways and go in the new ways. It says... In 1 Corinthians, it talks about how when we're tempted, he always provides a way out. Temptation is not sin. Temptation is the draw of sin. But that's where we say no and we say nope. And if you're tempted, 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 that's okay. You just keep walking the other way. And you keep saying, God, I need your strength. God, I need you. If that's you, I want to pray for you today. Lord, we have missed the mark. Lord, we've fallen away from you. And God, in little ways, we've allowed the little things to become okay that then become big things. And Lord, you say that when we're faithful in the little things, you'll bless us in the big things. Lord, would you help us to be faithful again in the little things? God, would you forgive our sin? Lord, would you turn us back to you? God, I'm asking for an encounter with you that would turn us away. But Lord, also that we would make those kind of decisions that we say no more, no more. I will no longer follow the ways and the enemy's dialogue about what my life could look like, which it always falls short of. Lord, help us not to be like Daniel and have to get to the point of having an encounter with Satan that scares us away from him. Lord, but instead encountering you in the life that you give. God, forgive us, cleanse us, wash us, and make us new. In Jesus' name. The second group I want to pray for are those who say, I I want new life. I want to be revived. I want to live again afresh in the ways of the Lord. Oftentimes the first one comes and then the second one comes, right? First we repent and then God comes to us in ways that are powerful. If that's you and you would like to receive a fresh touch of the Holy Spirit. And I'm praying it's more than that, a taste of revival, as he said. Would you open your hands to receive that? Lord, I'm asking that you would move in power. God, I'm asking that you would give us encounters with you like what Isaiah had, God. Like what Daniel had in Brownsville that changed him from being in and out to being consistently after your heart. Lord, encounters that took (laughs) some young people in a youth group (laughs) and changed their hearts as such that they said, I want to give my whole life to serving the Lord. God, would you give us encounters which would break our plans and, Lord, that would draw us instead to you. Lord, we need that. We can't live on dry religion, Lord. We need the Word and the Spirit. God, give us that today. We ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want to come and pray, the worship team is going to continue. The altars will be open. Come and seek God. Listen, prayer is the key to this. Repentance and prayer. Thank you so much.